Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, where our goal is to listen to the top artists and songs of the last 100 years, starting in 1920 and working our way forward. Four days a week, we review what we hear and share the history of popular music with you, as we do. I'm Richie, and you're listening to Side A of episode 1920-8, where we have reached a major milestone in our journey, the end of year 1920. Today we'll be introducing the last of our new artists for 1920, who mostly just had one hit song for the year. You'll hear some operatic highlights, though, and one of the year's best songs in Ben Selvin's Dardanella. First, let's take a look at some of the new artists we'll be listening to for today's music. Edith Day, who was born in 1896 Minneapolis, became one of the biggest Broadway stars of both New York and London, starting in 1919 with this smash hit, Alice Bluegown. While the song was originally performed in the musical Irene, this version was recorded in 1920 and features Day's signature soprano operatic style that gives it a Disney-esque quality of clear and eloquent song. Our second voice is also known for its operatic style, and that's the soprano voice of Elizabeth Spencer, who sings Let's the Rest of the World Go By and Look for the Silver Lining. Born in 1871, Spencer moved to Denver at a young age and was performing on vaudeville stages in New York comparatively late in life at 34. It's interesting to think that Elizabeth Spencer is best known for the recordings that she made working with Thomas Edison. Because she worked with Thomas Edison. It's crazy to think that only a hundred years ago, Thomas Edison was still big in the music industry. Bringing it home for our operatic singers today is Enrico Caruso of Naples, Italy, who was world-renowned for his voice. Born in 1873, 19th of 21 siblings, Caruso started out following in the footsteps of his father and was apprenticing to become a mechanic and engineer. However, when his mother died in 1888, Caruso took his talents to the street where he earned money for his family singing. Today, we listen to his version of A Dream. If you get a chance, you should look up a picture of Caruso, as he has a real swagger about him that makes you think he's going to bring the house down with his voice, and he knows it. Unfortunately, by 1921, he would have passed away, but we can bring him back a little today in hearing him sing. Isham Jones was born in 1894 in Colton, Ohio, moving with his family to Saginaw, Michigan when Jones was young, but he would make his start in Chicago by composing the song We're in the Army Now in 1917. If you've ever heard Bugs Bunny sing it in World War II cartoons when he gets drafted, you can thank Jones for that. While his work up to and including 1920 is interesting, Jones would go on to become one of the most popular band leaders of the early 20th century, so you can look forward to more from him in the coming episodes. Last but not least for today's new artist, Ben Selvin has the worst nickname so far of any of the musicians we listen to. The Dean of Recorded Music. That's like being the principal of jazz. That's the first celebrity nickname we've talked about that I don't think anyone is going to argue for. Selvin, like many of the other stars of the 20s that we've listened to, was the child of Russian Jewish immigrants who came to the U.S. But unlike most of his peers, somehow Selvin avoided an exclusive recording contract until 1927. He ended up recording for pretty much every label that would let him in the door. His recording of Dardanella for Victor, however, sold 6 million records, an impressive amount even today, and when you hear it, I think you'll see why. Finally, we have three songs which aren't versions from the 1920s, but were written and performed then. Unfortunately, the original artists aren't easily available on Spotify, but in an effort to get an idea of the songs that were at least popular at the time, we're going to break the rules a bit and listen to the newer versions. Since we're already breaking the rules and you can't get in trouble twice, we might as well go full bore, so we'll be listening to versions from the 50s and 60s. 
First, we can't get the look for the silver lining recording on Spotify from Elizabeth Spencer, so we'll have to settle for Aretha Franklin's version to get an idea of what the song should sound like. While we won't be reviewing Ms. Franklin's rendition since it'll bring tears to your eyes and it would be unfair to compare to the other 20 singers, we do thank the Queen of Soul for filling in here. As for our other non-reviewed guest singers, Ed Ames fills in for Sidney Phillips on Rose of Washington Square, and Norma Jean Mortensen, better known as Marilyn Monroe, will have to suffice for Van and Shanks after you get what you want, you don't want it. So as always, but for the last time in the year 1920, let's stop talking about the music and start listening. If you're not already listening to this part of the podcast through the Spotify playlist, it's highly recommended that you look the show up on Spotify by searching for Cunningham's Law Review. On our Spotify page, you'll find a playlist that features this, the side A part of the podcast, each of the songs that we'll be listening to for today, and side B of the podcast where we recap the songs we've heard and review each of them on their own. Today's playlist is posted on Spotify under the title Cunningham's Law Review 1920-8. You can also find a link to the playlist on the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We want to know what you think about our reviews and the music we're hearing, so make sure to join us on the subreddit or leave us an anchor voicemail. That's all for Side A of episode 1920-8. We'll see you for the reviews after the songs on Side B. Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-8. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law Review subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an Anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Today's musicians, and our last of 1920, sang with surprisingly beautiful operatic talent and left us with a lot to think of when we look back on 1920. In our reviews, we first start with Edith Day's Alice Blue Gown. What is Alice Blue? It's a color like Kelly Green or Tyrian Purple, and in this case, Alice Blue is a pale sky blue that was favored by the daughter of none other than Teddy Roosevelt, namesake of the teddy bear, and father to Hellion, Alice. She wore the color so often that she became known for it, but also earned fame for her antics. She smoked in public, she jumped in a pool without her clothes on, and shot at telegraph poles from a moving train. In the 1920s, that basically made her a felon. All this rambunctiousness prompted President Roosevelt to say, I can run the country, or I can control my daughter. I cannot do both. In the song Alice Blue Gown, it was a completely different picture presented of a young woman who finds herself feeling as if she has everyone's attention for the first time in her Alice blue gown, and can't help but show off a little as she walks around the town. Day's voice is excellent in the piece with an amazing soprano performance that strikes high notes effortlessly. She receives a four for authenticity by delivering the performance so sincerely that you'd believe she was remembering it directly. However, the song doesn't do much to innovate, instead sounding old-fashioned, and also doesn't lend itself to repeated listening, earning twos for innovations and catchiness. Day's performance here would earn a 5 for mastery were it not for the simplistic music that doesn't add much, and she earns a 4 there instead. But with a final 4 in artistic statement for her performance that gives you an idea of what it's like to be a young woman in a fine dress and to have people noticing you, she earns a total of 16 for the song. 
Moving on to Elizabeth Spencer, we look at Let the Rest of the World Go By, which earns a 12. While it's certainly hard to follow Edith Day's voice, Spencer's here sounds as if it has an affected operatic style that she can't pull off, and she receives a two for authenticity. Innovation and catchiness don't work to help out with twos themselves, but for average music and artistic statement examining Leaving It All Behind Us for Love, this duet earns a 12. Now we take a look at Enrico Caruso's A Dream. And I'll be honest, I was pumped to listen to this song because I had read about Enrico Caruso in writing Side A, and I saw how well he was respected. But when the song first opened up, I was a bit disappointed. It starts off a bit quiet and really doesn't test Caruso's range. But Caruso quickly gets into his full ability, and it was like he opened a window during a storm and a flood of talent blew in. Two quick stories about Caruso. First, he was good friends with John McCormick from episode 1920-2 who, if you'll remember, was also a classically trained operatist. However, he was always trying to learn just how McCormick was able to project so well, and was known for saying that McCormick spoke Italian better than he did, which is impressive since Caruso was from Naples. Second, Caruso performed in Naples early in his career, but refused to pay a group of professional audience members to applaud for him, maybe on the principle that it's a stupid job for imbeciles, but you can buy likes on social media today, so times haven't changed much. In any case, he had such a bad time that he said he'd never come back to Naples except to eat spaghetti, and he never performed there again. Caruso gets a three in all categories except for Mastery, where he earns a four. While the song is authentic, it's a basic love concept that's not hard to pull off, nor a unique statement, and as an operatic piece, it's not especially catchy or innovative. I did enjoy it when he really opened up his pipes so that even the cheap seats could hear him, though. The music here especially supports the drive and becomes softer and features pluck notes later in the second theme. That portion fits the theme much better. It's a grand melodramatic song, but melodrama works way better when you go all out and support it. And the song receives a 16 for pulling it out in the end. Isham Jones' Kismet earns a 17 out of 25, and his as a name we'll be hearing a lot more in the coming year's episodes. I think you get a good idea of why here, because the track features a really unique and interesting beat, and there's a 3 for authenticity and a 4 for innovation. What I would really love to hear is a sample of this song used in a modern rap song, but as it is, there's a lack of grab, and the song earns a 3 for catchiness. Mastery, however, is a 4, and Artistic Statement rounds the categories off with a 3. Finally, in our last song review of 1920, we approach Dardanella, which gets a 19 out of 25. Ben Selvin has given us a great song and one of the year's best here, earning fours in all categories except for a three in catchiness where it's just average. This song reminds me of Powerhouse by Ray Scott, a song that wouldn't be released for almost 20 years still, and which people now mostly know as the soundtrack for factories and cartoons. The song would be scored higher if all of the music built on the second themes pluck notes and jumping beat, but in diving back into the known safety of banjo-driven dance floor music, it abandoned some of its potentials. That may have been the right choice financially, though, since this track sold over 6 million copies. Believe it or not, that's it for 1920, and I'll say it's already been a jam-packed ride that I'm really enjoying, and I hope you are too. We've still got 99 years left to go. Tomorrow we'll be back with a Halloween episode featuring Dead Man's Party, an album from the man who would bring Jack Skellington's voice to life in The Nightmare Before Christmas, and who takes us on a thematic journey through death, hell, and salvation, while reminding us that no one lives forever. We want to know what you think, whether or not you agree with us, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. 
So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review or reach out through an Anchor voicemail. If you leave us an Anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own band's. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the podcast and playlist. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. Until next time, I've been your host, Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider, and nobody else works here. Nobody else works here.